This is Stacy Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison during our winter pledge drive. Please keep those calls coming. Here's tonight's headlines. The state Supreme Court has decided on the state's political maps for the next 10 years. In a 4-3 to decision today, the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled to adopt the lease changes plan proposed by Governor Tony Evers. That plan preserves many of the existing political boundaries, which would further entrench the GOP majority in elected positions, reports the Associated Press. While Republicans would still hold a majority of both the state Senate and Assembly, the maps are considered less favorable to the state GOP than other proposed maps. The adopted maps would elect 44 Democrats and 55 Republicans to the Assembly and 13 Democrats and 20 Republicans in the Senate. Justice Brian Hagedorn was the swing vote in the decision, saying that they chose maps that minimize changes from current maps. A Dane County judge ruled yesterday that Assembly Speaker Robin Voss and former state Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman must turn over public records related to the review into the 2020 presidential election. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the judge ruled the duo had, quote, arbitrarily and capriciously, unquote, denied or delayed access to the records. The records were requested by liberal watchdog group American Oversight last year. Gableman said that he requested to keep the documents secret as they involved information strategic to his campaign. The judge also ruled that the parties must each pay $1,000 in damages to American Oversight, but those fees may be passed on to Wisconsinites, adding on to the $676,000 bill taxpayers have already paid for the investigation. Over 200 education and business leaders across the state are calling on state lawmakers to use the budget surplus to help public education, reports the Capitol Times. The group includes Madison Superintendent Carlton Jenkins, the Wisconsin Retired Educators Association, the Maynard Steel Casting Company, and the public school districts across the state. They expressed their desire for more education funding in a letter to Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, Republican Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMayhew, and Governor Tony Evers. Governor Evers has stated that he hopes to use part of the state's $3.8 billion surplus to fund education, but Republican lawmakers have said that they plan to hold on to the money until next year. And now for today's COVID numbers. There were 517 confirmed COVID cases in Wisconsin yesterday, bringing the state's seven-day average to 560 cases per day over the past week. There were also no confirmed deaths from the virus across the state yesterday, as the total number of deaths from the virus in the state sits at 12,057. Here in Dane County, the transmission level now sits at a substantial transmission rate, as the county continues to see declining COVID cases. The county had been considered to have a high transmission rate for months. There were 69 new confirmed cases of the virus in Dane County yesterday, and 63 people remain hospitalized from the virus in Dane County. And those were your news, your local news headlines. We now turn to Dylan Brogan and Jonah Chester joining us in the studio to tell you a little something about WORT and our winter pledge drive.
Hey, thanks so much, Stacy, folks. My name, as Stacy mentioned, is Jonah Chester, and I'll be joining you for the next hour to talk about why WORT is such an important asset to our community from our news programming we got going on right now, the way to our music and culture shows, and why you should help us support our important mission here at WORT. As you might have heard, we're in the middle of our winter pledge drive right now, and the work he, we do here at the station is only made possible through the generous support of donors like you. Now, in case you missed it, uh, the best place to donate is either online or on the phone. You can give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 1. We have a bunch of awesome phone answers back in the station. They're great people. They're really chill, and they're ready to take your call. And also, we accept donations online at our website, wortfm.org. Once again, that's wortfm.org. Dylan, why don't you tell me a little bit about why you like to support WORT? Well, I've been a volunteer and a listener and, uh, and, and lots of other things for WORT for almost a decade now. And it's just um, particularly the 6 p.m. news show is such a valuable thing for the community. It brings together uh, uh, hundreds of people, dozens of people to put together or to focus on one thing, and that's a great nightly news show, which we pull off uh, four days a week here. And it it's unlike anything else on the air. Well, um, we're giving real uh, in-depth coverage to issues that, you know, maybe just gets a little, a few column inches mm -hmm. or uh, maybe a one-minute news story on the TV news. So that's why I think it's uh, really important that we support local programming like this. And it's if you listen to the local news show, if you listen to Democracy Now!, if you listen to a public affair, uh, w we need you to step up right now um, because WRT has so many different uh types of programming, right? We can't have those jazz fans beating, making us look bad. That's all yeah. I'm saying. We need the news fans, you know. Actually, I don't think we should tell them to fight, but I'm not telling you to fight, but come no, on. No, definitely no fighting. Help, help us, help fight us with money. for this hour. Yes, just, hey, and whatever, and we'll, we'll accept whatever, uh, you know, what feels comfortable to you, uh, whether that's a dollar a month, maybe that's $2 a month, uh, $10 a month, please give us a call and sign up right now. It's 608- um, oh my, I almost gave my cell phone number out right there. 608-256-2001. That'll connect you right away to one of our uh, one of our phone operators. And it's also very easy to make your uh, donation online. And now is the time to do it so we can get back to the local news and hear what happened uh, today. Uh, but we're just taking it just a very short break to, to let you know that we really depend on your support. And you put the community in community radio. Uh, but that means you gotta you got to step up right now. So go online at WORTFM.org and make your donation or your pledge. And, or give us a call, 608-256-2001. You got wrap it up here, Jonah. We got about 30 seconds before we have some breaking news to jump in. We with. got breaking news. We got a lot more to cover in this hour, so we're going to pass it back off in a minute. But I really just want to emphasize with these last couple seconds how important your support is to what we do here at the WORT News Department. From recorders to our staff, you know, running a news operation, it takes a lot of support. And thanks to you, we're able to pull it off four days a week, like Dylan said. Once again, the number is 608-256-2001. All right, let's turn it back to Stacey and Marcus. Thanks, guys. And now, back to the news. After months of back and forth, the Dane County Board is scheduled to vote this evening to approve plans for a new Dane County jail. But a new plan introduced yesterday, just one day before the vote, could change the scope of the project. WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout has the story. 
The plan to build a new jail was first approved in 2019 in an effort to close the aging jail in the city-county building, as well as the outdated Ferris-Huber Center. But after the pandemic hit and the cost of labor materials skyrocketed, the projected budget for the project quickly skyrocketed. Originally, it was estimated that the new jail would cost around $148 million, but that original plan would now cost around an additional $24 million. At the board's last meeting two weeks ago, county officials voted to postpone the vote to approve the funding to tonight, but a new plan, released just yesterday, may help to bring the project closer to the original budget. This new plan would lower the amount of beds to around 825, which is 97 less beds than the original plan and close to 200 beds less than the current jail. Supervisor Melissa Ratcliffe, who helped to write the plan, says that she still supports the original plan, but yesterday's changes were a compromise to get the project started. I, I'm still in support of keeping the 922-bed facility and the additional $24 million in funding, but I understand that others on our board had concerns about the scope of the project and the amount of funding, which is why I appreciated the collaboration with my colleagues to work on this and put forward this sub. The smaller jail would help bring the project closer to its original budget, this time around $16 million more than what was originally planned. It would also be enough to close the jail in the city-county building, which the writers of the amendment say was their number one priority. The new proposal would also give room for medical beds and would close solitary confinement within the Dane County Jail. The biggest change in this new plan is that it would not allow the Huber Center to close. The Huber Center, located near the Alliant Energy Center, is currently used for jail residents on work release. Under the plan, the Huber Center would have to remain open for at least another three years so that they could find a new space for jail residents on work release. Not everyone is on board with this new plan. Supervisor Yogesh Chala says that he feels it is imprudent for the board to vote on a plan that has only been released for a single day. Essentially what we're looking at here is a completely new plan and a completely new resolution. So I don't think it's prudent for the county board as a whole to take this up tonight. I think this needs to be definitely looked at in committee because there's a number of fairly significant changes and I think we need to get a lot more detail on them and I think we need to flesh out a lot more of these ideas. So I think the resolution still has a ways to go. Supervisor Patrick Miles also helped to write the new plan. He says that the reason the plan came out so late is because they had not finished writing it until early this week. Unfortunately, a simple case of logistics of our schedules lining up that we could meet. So the, those of us that agreed to come together and try to hammer out a, a compromise, uh, we were only able to meet late last week, well, basically last weekend, and then... There's some language I wanted in the resolve clauses that required consultation with bond council to make sure that it was uh, that we could actually do what I wanted to do in the resolved clauses, which is the enforceable part of the resolution. Dane County Executive Joe Parisi says that he is happy the board is working to compromise, but is worried that the resolution came out too late to have the support of the full board. You know, it's 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 a move in the right direction. It's good to see that people are you know looking at options and trying to find some common ground to make something work. Um, now we'll have to see if, you know, how much support there is for it on the board, if they have the votes to pass it or not. So I'll be watching and we'll, we'll see what they come up with tonight. The vote will happen at tonight's Dane County board meeting, which starts at 7 p.m. The resolution to increase the funding needs approval from three-fourths of the board to move forward. Reporting for WORT News, 
I'm Nate Wuggy Hout. Earlier today, Madison City Engineer Rob Phillips announced that after 30 years with the city's engineering division, he will be retiring next month. Now, Phillips has been in the engineering division since the 1980s and has been involved in countless infrastructure projects around Madison. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with Phillips to talk about his 30-year career. I'm on the line with city engineer Rob Phillips, who announced today that after three decades with the city, he will be retiring at the end of April. Rob, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Well, you're welcome. Glad to be here. So just to start things off with some context, how did you start your career here as a city engineer? And what exactly is it that you do in your position? What is a city engineer? Well, sure. Um, my, my career started... I guess well before becoming city engineer with the city. Back in uh, uh, 1988, I started here with the city as an entry-level engineer. And uh, at that point, I was in the section in engineering that works on streets and bridges and bike paths, sidewalks, those types of things. So that's where I started out. And uh, gradually over time, I just uh, progressed in my career, I guess, and eventually uh, became the principal in charge of that section. And I did that for a number of years uh, before uh, becoming the assistant city engineer and then later the, the city engineer here in Madison. So uh, it's been been quite a long time with the city and it's, it's been a, a wonderful experience and lots of uh, lots of wonderful people here, really talented, smart people here that I'd had the, the pleasure to work with. Now, I feel like if anyone has a sort of interesting different view of the city. It's going to be you. You've been with the engineering division for, like I said, three decades now, and you've been a part of a lot of major road projects here around the city, including rebuilding most of the major streets downtown and the construction of John Nolan Drive. What can you tell me about some of those projects? Did you learn anything interesting about the city while doing those projects? Well, I think the the first thing about the city is that our citizens are, are more involved than probably other places. So early on, there, there was a need for public involvement, and that, that effort has grown a great deal over the years. And people expect uh, you know, so much more today than they did when I started. And again, it's just, it's just progressed uh, throughout my career. But uh, you know, each project is different. Each project has its own challenges. And I guess what I enjoy doing is you know, working with people and working with my staff and and uh, consulting engineers in, in many cases to come up with solutions to those problems. And, and uh, all of them had one or two, and we, we were able to, to, to do that. Uh, most of those projects have uh, bike uh, facilities on them, incorporated on them. And what we do today is, is a little different in terms of bikes than what we did uh, years ago. It used to be just typically just bike paths on the streets. Now we're, we're doing uh, separated paths more kind of an all ages and abilities paths. So that's, that's definitely changed. Uh, lots of accommodations for uh, pedestrians uh, on those projects. Uh, we're always looking for ways to improve the, the way that pedestrians can cross the street and make them safer, maintaining that capacity for downtown and, and keeping uh, people wanting to come downtown and wanting to work downtown. Uh, all of that uh, figured into a lot of those projects. Again, they all had their own, their own challenges and it was, it was in, I enjoyed uh, working on those. Now, another thing that you've been involved with and something that I 
very interested in is your work with the watershed studies that are currently underway. Uh, what are these studies looking to do and why did they start them? It's all sort of stemmed from the 2018 floods, correct? That's right. Uh, on August 20th, 2018, we had the historic rains uh, over 12 inches in, in some parts of the city and, and even more west of Madison. It's just unprecedented, uh, just an unprecedented amount of rain. And it identified uh, a, a lot of deficiencies in the system and the stormwater system. That's the, the system of pipes and ponds and greenways that carry the water from the streets and properties to uh, our lakes and, and uh, rivers. We found out uh, as a result of the, the flood and, and, and actually large rain events previous to that, that in many instances, they they our, our system was just not up to the up to par what we'd like it to be today. And what you got to keep in mind is that, you know, this is infrastructure has been in place in some cases, you know, for a hundred years. And uh, over time, those design uh, standards change a great deal. So we uh, embarked on the the watershed studies and I I have to give the credit to our stormwater section. They've, they've done just an excellent job uh, responding to the, to the floods. And what the studies do is they identify where the system uh, has problems and, you know, more importantly, what can be done to resolve those problems. And the solutions aren't just more, more pipes or larger pipes. You know, the solutions involve uh, green infrastructure and, and uh, alternate ways to mitigate the, the, the flooding uh, that, that's occurring. So a lot of work to do there, but uh, we're off to a good start. And I'm sure as I leave the city, uh, that work uh, will continue by the by the uh, folks that we have in our stormwater section. Like you just said, you're set to leave pretty soon here, end of April, sort of looking forward at the city of Madison. What do you see going forward in the coming years in terms of the engineering division? Are there any major projects that you can see coming down the pipeline here? What do you see coming up here? Well, you know, the, the, the big thing is, uh, is addressing climate change and doing uh, doing our part to address climate change. We've already, by 2020, uh, we had installed one megawatt of solar on our buildings. By 2022, uh, end of this year, we intend to install another megawatt of uh, solar PV on our, on our city facilities. That is going to be a big, a big issue going forward to get that work done. Uh, I, I talked about the watershed studies and flooding those flood mitigation projects are extremely expensive and we can't afford to do them really. So we need to find outside funding to supplement the funding that, that we, we get here locally. Uh, that's going to be really important. Energy efficiency in our buildings, uh, that, that work's going to have to continue. Uh, it's just a, just a number of things that, that, that are still changing. You know, things are always constantly changing and the engineering division is constantly changing. And the engineering division will have to do that in the future, and I'm sure they will. Rob, do you have just any final thoughts on your 30-year career here with the city? I think I was fortunate. I'm fortunate to have, you know, such an ex- exceptional staff. They're, they're hardworking, talented, innovative people that, that help me come up with uh, solutions and ideas and how to handle problems, ways to go forward. It's just we're just really fortunate. To, I'm really fortunate to have the people around me and, and in other departments as well and department heads and the, the folks that I've worked with here. It's just been an honor and, and uh, 
I just feel grateful for for that. I've been speaking with city engineer Rob Phillips on his three-decade career working with the city of Madison. Rob is set to retire at the end of April. Rob, thank you for talking with me, and thank you for everything you've done for the city, and congratulations on your retirement. Thank you so much. It's now 6.26 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We'll now turn to Dylan and Jonah with the challenge to our listeners to call in with their pledge for the WORT Winter Pledge Drive. Hey, Marcus, thanks so much, folks. My name is Jonah Chester, and I'm once again joining you to tell you why you should help support our work here at WORT. In case you missed it, we're in the middle of our Winter Pledge Drive, and we have phone answers waiting to help take your donation to the station. Let me just say it off the top here, just in case you missed it when we've said it before. The number to call is 608-256-2001. You can also donate online at wortfm.org. Now, let me tell you something that I really appreciate about the 6 o'clock local news. And I am in no way biased, even though I used to produce the 6 o'clock local news. But let me just say this. I really appreciate that this news show is not only produced by the community, for the community, but it features so many members of the community. That is such an important resource in an era when we're seeing a lot of local news operations that have closed their doors, leaving these news deserts that follow really, really local granular issues. And you know, what other station would you would you tune into to hear an interview with the city engineer who has all that deep, deep knowledge about city history, about what's happening, and really, where else would you be able to get that or or coverage of local government events? You know, I think that's such a valuable resource. And I think if you agree with me, you should really consider donating what we do here at the station, particularly in our news department. If you're a regular listener of the six o'clock local news or really any of our other talk and public affair programs, you know, from from a public affair itself to the eight o'clock buzz, I'd really encourage you to consider donating. Once again, the number to call is 608-256-2001. Yeah, and we don't come to you all the time asking uh, asking for pledges to keep you to keep us going um, year after year. Um, but when we do, uh, we really mean it, and uh, we don't like to interrupt uh, our usual scheduled programming. We're all about giving the community access to the airwaves and providing great programming for the community. And that's why um, when we do come to you, we're we're being really serious. This is the time. Uh, this is the place to 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 do your part. That's just that simple. We just need you to pledge right now. We're looking for four people to donate this hour. That'll help us make our goal. And we want to make sure that um, when you call in, it's not just the financial contribution. It's also a show of strength for this kind of programming, that Madison needs this kind of programming that is produced by local volunteers, that is for the community. And um, it's just a very unique offering. And we are very lucky as a city to to have this resource called WORT. I couldn't agree more. And you know what? You could also donate online. Yeah, I don't know if I easy. mentioned that before. It's easy peasy. It takes maybe, maybe, at the outmost, five minutes of your time. Five minutes of your time. To oh, support that's crazy. It's an incredible community resource. One minute. Maybe even less, depending on your, your internet speed. Yeah. My internet is personally not that good. But, hey, maybe less than a minute. It's just at wortfm.org. You can't miss the Donate Now button. It's right there on the page. I'm asking you as a personal favor, please consider donating to support what we do here at WORT. Yes, and we are uh, we want to provide you the most local news possible even during the pledge drive. That's why we got to turn it back over to Stacy and Marcus and uh, check out some world headlines. But uh, 
please make a pledge now, 608-256-2001, or donate online at WRTFM.org. And thanks to Dylan and Jonah for that pledge drive check-in. And you're listening to Handcrafted Artisanal, live and local news here on WORT 89.9 FM. There's more stories coming up in the second half of the show. Transparency Talk looks at open records in the Gableman investigation. We'll have a review of the musical Hairspray and Radio Chipstone looks to define cultural appropriation. But now we're getting the update on world headlines from the BBC. Please keep your calls coming and we'll be right back. Time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT 89.9 FM right here in Madison. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us tonight. Every other Thursday, our contributor Jonah Chester sits down with Tom Kamenick, the founder and president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to talk about open records and open government. This week, Kamenick and Chester unpack the Gableman Report, the secretive investigation into Wisconsin's 2020 election released earlier this week. Now, two quick notes before we jump in. Now, first, this conversation isn't specific legal advice, so be sure to seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government. And second, Kamenick clerked for Michael Gableman, the probe's lead investigator, when Gableman served on the state Supreme Court. All right, it is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line, as is tradition, by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how are you holding up this week? Jonah, I'm doing good. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday, Tom. It's a beautiful Thursday. I feel spring on the horizon. Hey, you know what I want to talk about this week? Big news in Wisconsin politics. One Michael Gableman, after uh, much anticipation, finally released his report into the November 2020 presidential election. But I want to talk a little bit about the open records and public information part of that investigation. Now, Tom, for those of us who don't know, give us the background on the Gableman election probe. Yeah, Michael Gableman is a former Supreme Court justice from the Wisconsin Supreme Court, not U.S., just Wisconsin Supreme Court. He's been kind of out of the spotlight since he left the court several years ago, but he was recently hired by Republican legislature to investigate and issue a report on the 2020 election. And it's for context, that was the election, the spring election occurring right as COVID was hitting the fall election. Uh, it was kind of another spike going on then too, but people had a better track on everything that was going on by then. And that report, like 120 some pages was issued this week. Mm-hmm. And I had a chance to peruse that report for my reporting on the report earlier this week. I'm so sorry to hear that. You know, I also sat through the, I also sat through the committee meeting and it was A very odd committee meeting to sit through, if I'm being honest. But there is a specific part of the report that complains about having to respond to open record requests. Tom, take me through what the report has to say about Wisconsin's open record laws, and and particularly as it relates to elections and voter rolls and what have you. 
Yeah, this was a government office. It was newly created, but it's still a government agency and it was doing government work. It was subject to the open records law. And the, the office tried to raise some arguments saying, well, we're prosecutors. We don't have to turn anything over. Well, that didn't fly because they're not prosecutors like DAs. And they were doing an investigation, but that does not exempt them from the open records law. That's one of my favorite refrains is that there's no ex blanket exemption for ongoing investigations. And this report spends four and a half pages just complaining about these record requests that they got. And they, they called what they called them, quote, voluminous open record requests by dark money nonprofits, end quote, and said that that was obstructing their work. And, you know, anytime somebody uses dark money, they're not being serious. They're running an ad campaign and, and, at that point. Michael Gableman was, as you mentioned, sued repeatedly to get access to these records. Most recently, um, I believe it was the organization American Oversight, a judge actually cited in their favor earlier this week that they they violated the open records law. The judge in that case has repeatedly ruled against Voss and Gableman and said, no, you need to respond. No, you need to turn these over. You need to turn these over now. You haven't done it yet. We're seeking sanctions. You need to turn them over. Finally, the judges had enough and hit uh, Voss and Gableman each with $1,000. Uh, a lot of the reporting calls it a fine. Technically, it's it's punitive damages, uh, which are really, really uh, uncommon in records cases. You have to be acting really, really badly for a judge to, to issue punitive damages against you. And, you know, back to the report itself, too, that this complaint about record requests is just so tone deaf and hypocritical because also in the same report, there's repeated complaints about the difficulty Gableman was having getting records that he wanted himself for his investigation from local election clerks and from the Wisconsin Election Commission. So the, the crux of his argument is I should not have to do this thing, but other people should. It's not even so much I shouldn't have to, but it, it's just this constant it don't just get this from gableman too the election commission itself a couple weeks ago was complaining all oh, these are just too big we just can't handle all these record requests well you know the goal of, of record requests and government transparency is not efficiency if you wanted efficiency you would do everything in secrecy you know i, I just want this attitude to change you know people realize they're doing the people's work here and losses and efficiency don't matter and, you know, especially the more important work you're doing, the higher profile government work you are doing, you're going to be seeing larger and larger and more frequent record requests, and you're just going to have to fulfill them. And that is part of your job. I've been joined on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, as always, thanks again for talking with me, and we'll speak again in a few weeks. We will. And in the meantime, folks, you know, donate to this pledge drive. This stuff is important. And remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. Thanks. And we'll turn now to Dylan and Jonah, who will tell you a little something about how your support makes the local news happen during our winter pledge drive. You know, I couldn't agree with my pal Tom there just a minute ago. Donating to support WORT during our pledge drives is incredibly important. Look at what we've covered so far today. I've already mentioned we got a lot of you know, local issues in the front half, but we're even taking a deep dive into items like the Gableman investigation. Now, I've read a lot, as I mentioned, I filed a report on it earlier this week, so I've read a lot about that investigation, but I haven't quite heard many or any of the points Tom brought up during our segment that you heard here exclusively on WORT about open records, about open government, 
because that's what we here at the WRT News Department believe in. We believe in transparency. We believe in accuracy and reporting. We believe that an informed electorate is incredibly responsible to their, or incredibly important for the democratic process. And by supporting WORT, you, you show us that you believe that too, you know. By supporting WORT, you support our investigations, our examinations into local government, into state government, all of that jazz. So, you know, if you want to support that work, give us a call. The number is, once again, 608-256-2001. You can keep our phone answerers company. I know they love to hear from you. There's some amazing folks, and they'd love to chat with you. Or you can... Give us a donation online at wortfm.org. You really can't miss it. Giant orange banner right at the top there. Super easy to donate. Won't take more than a minute. And it looks like... Yeah, it looks like we um, got a pledge, which is great. And, and Jonah, I just have to say that uh, Transparency Talk is one of my favorite segments here on uh, the WRT News Show. Um, I believe I gave you the idea for that. But, oh, I'd credit where credit is due. Dylan, I don't know why I felt like I needed to say that, but I it is a great segment, and you know why? Because look at what great information we got, and it was also presented in a way like how easy would it have been? Uh, and what do we hear all the time on? Uh, you know, the the constant back and forth with partisan media mm-hmm. who are picking sides. No, Tom gave like a very uh, like thoughtful answer about how there are open records law and Gableman and the Wisconsin Election Commission mm-hmm. both were complaining about it. Interesting thing to point out, right? So not everything is, uh, has to devolve into some sort of petty arguing. Uh, sometimes just having good information and uh, providing the public with um, valuable information so they can get, you know, uh, providing a service like that every week is just really important. So I'm glad we do that segment, and it's one of just um, dozens of great features that we have. We got weather segments. We have animal segments. We have um, we have Jonifer, who is a wonderful uh, I love contributor. Jonifer. Yes, and that and that's not even uh, mentioning the great local reporting that we hear in the first half of the show and these detailed reports um, about what happened today in the news. And just uh, it's just such a pleasure to be part of this program. And that's why we need you to help us out this hour. And please show your support um, by dialing 608-256-2001. That's 608-256-2001. Or you can do it at uh, wrtfm.org. So tell us a little bit more about, like, you love doing that segment too, Jonah, right? I do love doing that segment. I love talking with Tom every other week. It's such an interesting deep dive into open government issues, open records issues. Sure, sometimes we get a little bit too into the weeds, but you know what? I know that the WORT listening community loves that because you're the type of news consumer that likes getting into the weeds, and that's the kind of coverage you help support. But you know what? I, I didn't mean to gloss over our amazing arts and culture coverage. Oh, yeah. We do a lot of local news. We do a lot or we do a lot of local government, a lot of state government, but we do some amazing arts and, and culture coverage from Harry Richardson's movie reviews to we got a we got a review of hairspray coming up that I'm really looking forward to. And of course, once again, mentioning the fantastic Jennifer Fields and her radio chipstone segments. Always a personal favorite. And hey, let's end this little pledge break right now, Jonah. With uh, we got a great pledge um, from uh, Joe. Joe from Madison. We, you're our hero this hour. We need more heroes like Joe. He likes psychoacoustics. He likes the vinyl resting place, Melon Floyd, and I assume he likes the local news. I assume so too. Yes. Yeah, so please um, call right now and help us out. Um, the number again: six zero eight two five six two thousand one. Or you can go to wrtfm.org and make your pledge there. Now let's turn it back to Stacy and Marcus and get more on the local news front. Thanks, guys.
Please keep your pledges coming as we go back to the local news. Hairspray the Musical finished its short run at the Overture Center last weekend, and feature producer Heron Splinter was there for opening night to give us a review of the 1980s classic. Hairspray the Musical was at Overture Center until last Sunday. I went to its opening night last Wednesday, the 23rd, and witnessed its brilliant bopping beauty. Set in Baltimore in the early 1960s, the story follows high schooler Tracy Turnblad, who is a plus-sized teen with a best friend named Penny. Tracy has an intense love for Baltimore's Corny Collins TV dancing show, but after auditioning and getting rejected, Tracy meets a friendly group of dancing black teens. Using the leader, Seaweed's, moves to get on the show, Tracy attempts to integrate the show to the displeasure of the producer, Velma Von Tussel. Tracy also pursues a romance with the lead boy, Link Larkin. With the support from Seaweed's and her own family, Tracy conducts a dancing protest of the show. All get thrown in jail, and that's the end of the 75-minute first act. In the second act, Tracy's father pays the bond of all the locked-up gals, while Link later breaks Tracy out of solitary confinement. All eventually rally together and push to integrate the show during the nationally broadcast dance competition between Tracy and Amber Von Tussel. Tracy and co. manage to beat the Nepotic duo and all ends happily ever after. Between all that, our sideshow I Want songs from Tracy, Link, the Von Tussels, and intense gospel reveries from Motormouth, Seaweed's mom. The plot moves along at a swift pace for such a long show, mostly dwelling on charming relationship songs between Tracy and Link, Penny, Seaweed, and others. Hairspray fits into a habit of American history musical pastiche. It was originally written by King of Camp John Waters as a comedy film in the late 80s and later turned into a Broadway musical in 2002. The end result is a show that has designed hallmarks and historical content, but the bare minimum of both. Hairspray certainly looks as if it's set in 1962, but without the help of detail and specificity in its design, it ends up impactless. The shortcomings of the set design are certainly understandable. After all, these shows have practical concerns that force them to drive down costs. Touring Broadway shows are designed to compress their stock in order to minimize the amount of trucks needed to transport it to the next town. This means that a touring version of the show will never quite be as elaborate and rich as its on-Broadway cousin. Therefore, Hairspray contains numerous small roll-on sets that never fulfill a rich dramatic purpose. I enjoyed seeing what the production did achieve given these restrictions. Of particular note are the practical lighting fixtures. The wireless control of these battery-powered lights added to the action on stage. Corny Collins' TV podium had a chasing-style marquee lights that responded to the music and choreography of the actors. Also, the TV in Tracy Turnblad's house lit up the actress's face in a beautiful flickering light that made me excited for the Corny show as they were. The energetic acting was incredible. Every song is uplifting and spirited. The actor's enthusiasm is infectious, even if it boils over into camp. This was especially true for Andrew Levitt's drag performance of Edna Turnblad. Sitting in the theater, I thought of just how much stamina is required to perform this nonstop show. Dancers are constantly moving, though sometimes it felt like they only did this to keep things looking busy. 
The choreography was active, but lacked motivation. The actors sang their hearts out, but often their voices paled as they were broadcast from the sound system. The mixing in this show was palatable, but challenging to listen to. Any time the ensemble cast joined in behind the principal actors, the principals were drowned out. This meant that the only time to enjoy Hairspray's comedic lyrics was when they peeked out from behind the chorus, such as in a solo number. I also noticed a severe lack of dynamic range. Of course, having everyone's voice be equally loud makes sure the audience can hear all the lines, but the constant level of volume meant that the show became fatiguing after a few numbers. Supporting the cast was a masterful band. Their comedic timing and connection with the actors was palatable and exciting. The band jumped from gospel to rock, big band and jazz to fit all the settings. They truly were the heart of the show. Hairspray is not a musical for a person who has let cynicism seep deep into their bones. The story may be as worn as a shag rug, but if you step back, at least it still has a pretty pattern. The uplifting beats and situational comedy made the show a charmer with an air of novelty. Reviewing for WORT News, I'm Heron Splinter. Cultural appropriation is an enormously complicated concept that can't be defined in a matter of minutes. However, in order to understand the problem, you got to start somewhere. Dakota Mace is a photographer for the Center for Design and Material Culture and graduate advisor for the School of Art at UW-Madison. In this episode of Radio Chipstone, contributor Jennifer Fields and Mace take the first of many steps to unpack the problem of cultural appropriation. Cultural appropriation can get pretty complex when trying to define the exact term and how it relates to um, certain identities and um, cultural beliefs. But for myself, cultural appropriation is basically the taking of a culture's um, either designs or um, you know cultural elements and using it uh, for their benefit. So not giving um, any financial incentive or um, support back to the communities that they're pulling from. And I wonder, in talking to people about this, because it is such a broad discussion, some people want to go as far back as to define then what is culture. You know, there are arguments that sharing makes a culture stronger. You know, there are people who talk about how the Kenta cloth and textiles aren't even made primarily in Africa. They're made in Holland. But most of the conversations that I have with people about cultural appropriation, they're looking for a way they're looking for permission. They're looking for me as a, as a black woman to give them permission to do these things, whether or not I come from that culture. When you're talking about this in the broader scope, do you find that sort of argument where people are basically looking to you to give permission and not necessarily truly understand what it is that is the issue? Oh, yes, definitely. All the time. Um, so this is something that has been happening recently within the last couple of years, uh, where a lot of either individuals or organizations or even instructors reach out to me to kind of get feedback in terms of if something is being appropriated. Um, and I try to be as clear as possible saying, um, usually it's best to do your own research in terms of understanding what cultural appropriation is, how you would personally define it. Um, but like I said, it varies from, you know, area to area, um, especially when 
talking about cultural appropriation within design or even arts, um, there's different kind of guidelines and rules when it comes to that. So that's why cultural appropriation is kind of a very fine line between whether it's appreciation or appropriation. Um, but for you know most individuals that I talk to, I try to give them as much context in terms of why it is hurtful for certain communities um, and why it's important to be able to teach those histories because most often these are the histories that are kind of omitted from books and everything and it's not as very widely talked about as it should be. And I think the one thing that people, I don't want to say that people, let me just put this into a personal, let me just speak for myself here. This isn't new. But it seems now that there is an eye turned to it. What turned your eye to it? What is it that that brought it to your attention that really sort of, as my mother would say, put that taste in your mouth? Yeah. Uh, so the first time that really kind of impacted me was leaving my home state of New Mexico. Um, so in New Mexico, I'm surrounded not only by my own culture, um, but a lot of a blend of different indigenous cultures within that region. Um, so it's very... Um, heavy on our heritage and our history. So coming up to Wisconsin, that was kind of one of my first times experiencing um, the way that people kind of appropriate our identity. And it was actually a trip to Urban Outfitters um, and realizing a lot of the designs that they were pulling from were taken out of context. So certain designs are related either to um, ceremony, especially within the Diné culture, sand paintings are extremely important, but there were jackets with the Yebaches on there. Um, you know, there was underwear with Navajo or Diné um, design elements on it. So it was kind of a huge disrespect to not only myself, but also to the community that I represent. Um, and it's just the fact that people saw it just as an aesthetic appeal and not understanding that it's connected to a very long line and history of indigenous people. Thanks for that story. And now we're gonna go back to Dylan and Jonah one last time to tell you about the impact of your support for the local news during our winter pledge drive. Thanks, Stacy. Like, like Stacy just said, this is Jonah Chester coming back to you one final time along with my pal Dylan Brogan to tell you one last time for the 6 o'clock news segment why you should donate to WORT. And we've got some big news. Yeah, we, we got do. a donation from Cindy in Madison. Thank you, Cindy. Cindy's donating to support our wonderful jazz programming and world music programming. As an avid listener of the jazz shows when I'm at home working in the afternoons, couldn't agree more, Cindy. I do Love our jazz program. We got a web pledge, too, there. Oh, we got there. a web pledge, yes, too. Yes, we All do. Right. Cool. We've got, oh, I apologize if I get this wrong. It's either Ima or Ima. Ima or Ima. Thank you so much for donating to WORT. Uh, it's, it's a, read that again. It's Ima Doomy. Ima Doomy. Ima Doomy. Thank you, Ima. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ima. Your generous support is greatly appreciated. And you know what? For all of you who haven't donated yet to WORT, please consider doing so. Our wonderful phone answers are sitting by, just waiting to chat you up, to talk to you about how your evening's going, and to take your pledge. You can reach those folks at 608-256-2001. Once again, that's 608-256-2001. Give them a call. Keep them company. Or you can donate online at WORTFM.com. Dot org. It's the 
big orange banner right at the top of the web page. You cannot miss it. Takes, according to Dylan, less than a minute. I it's real somewhere quick. between a minute or two. Yeah. Regardless, it's, it's a it's very easy. quick process. Quick and easy. Yes, and uh, and thank you to everyone who uh, donated these last two hours. This news block is uh, a really important component of our public affairs and news programming. Um, but it takes, uh, you know, it, it's one of the most expensive parts too because it requires uh, not only to get Amy Goodman uh, with, and, that, and to help support that big operation, but we also have BBC headlines that are really important. And then we have like uh, dozens of volunteers that help make this local news show possible. And uh, like, it's really important that you show your support right now. We don't come to you every week and ask you to do this. Uh, we ask just a few times a year, and it's because we're serious about it, and we want to we want to continue strong this coming year and continue to offer even more uh, programming of that's uh, local, community-driven, and it's just such a, a unique, a unique uh, opportunity to not only volunteer uh, here at Ward, but also to be a listener. And we know you like it. That's why you're listening, so help us out. 608-256-2001. Uh, we got a uh, we got to wrap it up here, Jonah. So give one last spiel. What What's your one favorite thing spiel. about the the Wart News Show? My favorite thing about the Wart News Show is, well, I got to give a shout out to Transparency Talk. Obviously, that's one of my favorites. But, you know, like I've said so many times before, your support for local news, news operations is more important now than ever. We live in divisive times. That's no secret. But, you know, WART helps you. WRT helps you cut through all of that. Get to the to the crux of the issue. What's happening in your community? How does this affect me? What can I do to change this? We are all about solutions oriented journalism. As always, your support, the support of the amazing donors we've had this hour. All of that helps us achieve that mission. All right, let's turn it back uh, to Stacy and Marcus, who are going to wrap it up. But uh, remember, the 608-256-2001. We'd love to get one more, just one more pledge this hour. Um, make it possible. Be our friend. This is For Dylan and Jonah, we're saying peace out. Uh, but let's turn it over to Stacy and Marcus before we go, okay? Thanks, guys. Please keep those pledges coming in support of WORT. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonathan Fields, Aaron Splinter, and Jonah Chester, who pulled double duty tonight to be our special special guest, with Dylan Brogan, who also pulled double duty as our engineer. Nate Wiggy Hout produced this newscast, and Miss Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening and pledging. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Up next is a special live version of the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening. Keep pledging and good night.